I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Our lives and the world around us are often riddled with all kinds of evil, injustice, and suffering. Is God ever to blame, or is the devil capable of more than just lying? How do we, as apprentices of Jesus, learn to identify the work of the evil one with confidence? All right, so for this evening, let us begin with English comedian and outspoken atheist uh, Stephen Fry. Specifically, let me show you guys a clip from 2015 in which Fry is asked a question about God. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, Mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as theodicy, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac. Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. What kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent. He is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question that I ever (laughs) got in this entire series. Now, my work for the ensuing half hour and change is to convince you guys that everything that we've heard from Mr. Fry is actually entirely correct. And as usual, we'll get there by way of the scriptures. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, if you're new to the Bible or have yet to memorize the order, feel free to consult the table of contents. Yeah, that's funny, right? It's what we call subtle humor in the business. It's unrealistic to expect that you've memorized all the books of the Bible. You get why that's funny? Come on, are you all right? (laughs) Thanks, Crystal. Yeah, she's like, stop. All right, Daniel chapter 10. When you guys get there, let's read beginning with the very first verse. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who's called Belteshazzar. Its its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Verse 2. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So pause for a moment. Here, you have a gentleman called Daniel who gets very serious news, so he responds very seriously with certain disciplines of abstinence and prayer. He's orienting himself toward God. And in the story, God responds. Skip down to verse 10. 
A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I, hadn't, I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Now pay close attention to this next part, verse 12. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them, but... The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now, the king of Persia, in context, isn't an actual human king on a throne, but a spiritual being with authority over a geographic location. In theology, what is sometimes called a territorial spirit. And, this spirit. and the same is true with the chief uh, or the, one of the spiritual beings called Michael as well. So in the story, you have a gentleman called Daniel. He prays. He gets serious news. He asks God to intervene in his life. And you later learn in that same story that God had responded immediately. He dispatched a spiritual being as an answer to Daniel's prayer. And yet... The response to that question was delayed, not according to God's mysterious purposes, but because an opposing being in the spiritual realm was able to delay it. Now, consider for a moment the implications of such a simple, short, strange little story. If one spiritual entity resisting another spiritual entity can delay an answer to prayer, does it logically follow that they can stop a prayer from being answered altogether? And then it begs the question, has this ever happened to you? And how can you possibly know? If a spiritual being can do that, what else can they do? Or what else have they done? For weeks now, we've been slowly working our way through what is, for many of us, a challenging new way of understanding the world. And for others, the paradigm itself isn't necessarily a new one, but living as though this paradigm was a reality, that's a different story. And if you think back, it's actually been uh, quite a wild ride, or if you're new, here's what it's been like. You, we've been talking about the primary antagonist of the Bible's story, and it's a creature called the devil. And apparently, this creature isn't alone. The universe, we've been learning, is made up of two overlapping realities. You have the physical realm and the spiritual realm, and both realms are populated with very real living beings with power to interact with and affect both dimensions of reality, for better or for worse. And this means that we, as human beings, can interact with and affect the spiritual realm, meaning we can pray against things like demonic oppression and stuff happens, or we can ask for God's help and stuff happens. And it works the other way as well. And because of that, we need to remember that spiritual beings can affect matter, meaning spiritual beings can interact with the physical realm. And in the same way that there are human and spiritual beings who are on God's side in the story, there are human and spiritual beings who are set against God. The chief among them is sometimes called the enemy, and the enemy's primary objective is to murder and to destroy. And we've been talking quite a bit about his modus operandi. The primary way he goes about it is just lies. But what I want to do now is take all this work that we've been doing on fighting the world, the flesh, and specifically the devil, and I want to carry it out to one of its logical conclusions. And when we get there, we will be, we will be made to grapple with something quite serious. Are you guys ready to get to work for a little bit? You all right? Great. Now bear with me. We're going to have to do a, a few complicated things along the way. Hang in there. We're en route to something massively important. And please listen. 
Though deceit is the go-to strategy of the enemy, something we've been saying on and on throughout the Syria and in the practices as well, that isn't the only thing that he does, and it certainly isn't the only thing that he can do. So turn to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to spend the next little stretch of time unpacking three broad categories. The first is sickness and death, and then we will get to natural evil, and finally, chaos. These also happen to be the same talking points that I use at dinner parties, so feel free to borrow these if you're trying to mingle and warm up to crowds. <laughs> now, we're, we're building out these three paradigms so that we can construct something that's called a spiritual warfare theodicy. A theodicy is an answer to the problem of evil, and I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard the problem of evil. It's a huge issue in philosophy and theology, and it goes, if God really is all good, and if God really is all powerful, then why is there still evil in the world? And how you answer that question is called your theodicy. All right, Mark chapter 9. You guys ready? Let's read beginning with verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, one of my favorite lines in all the gospel stories, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him, never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. All right, there's uh, so much there, obviously, but for our purposes this evening, let me pose a question. Was this boy in the story sick or oppressed by an evil spirit? Yes, wow, you guys all know the trick answer to this. I wasn't, you can do that that way, that's just fine. Yes, um, the father in the story describes his son as being, and I quote, possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. But the malady is obviously twofold. There's a physical ailment and there is apparently some kind of demonic oppression. Now in the modern world, the tendency is to simply read the prognosis as like a really primitive one. The boy we think is kind of just epileptic and maybe mute and ancient peoples associated these kinds of ailments with evil spirits. But now we know better. But the problem with that is that Jesus <laughs> performs an exorcism, and it works. 
And the boy who had been mute shrieks all of a sudden. And Jesus doesn't simply do a healing work against epilepsy. He could have done that. Instead, he speaks directly to a personified entity and says, I command you, come out of him, drawing a distinction between the boy and the spirit, and says, never enter him again. So when you ask the question, well, is Jesus healing a mute boy or is he casting out a demon? The answer is obviously he's doing both. And the distinction between those two things is, is one not made by Jesus or by the gospel authors. In fact, they want us to see Jesus' work of healing and of casting out demons as irrevoc irrevocably connected ideas. For Jesus, sickness and suffering are not imposed by God. They're not God's will at all, actually, but they are the work of someone the New Testament calls the devil or Hasatan, the Satan. Of course, this worldview that sickness is the work of Satan is not unique to the one gospel story. The authors of Scripture, the first disciples of Jesus, the earliest church fathers believed the same thing. Um, here it is articulated in Acts really well. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. For the authors of Scripture, Jesus' work in healing the sick is not dissimilar to his work casting out demons. Let's look at one more story from Luke's gospel. I'll read this one to you, so get ready for a big old slide. <clears throat> On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There's six days for work. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? So, this brings us to the very first important point in building out a spiritual warfare theodicy, and that is that spiritual beings have the ability to afflict human beings with physical and mental illness. Now, that does not mean that all physical and mental illness comes directly from an evil spirit, but it does mean that they can. Now, this point presupposes the belief that just as human beings have been created with agency, meaning freedom to do what they want, spiritual beings have been given that same autonomy. Uh, why? I don't know. Couldn't God just get what he wants by exercising unilateral control over creation? Well, sure, I'm, I'm, I suppose he could. But then there would be no relationship. There would be no collaboration. There would be no genuine love. And God fervently desires all three things. And that much is clear from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Look at the way one little-known thinker called C.S. Lewis summarizes this idea. He writes, God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go wrong or right. Free will, though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free. 
Of course God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. If God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, free will, that is, for making a real world in which creatures can do real good or harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it that it is worth paying. So, you've got human beings with freedom and spiritual beings with freedom, and both of them are fully capable of doing good, or doing evil. Um, scholar Tim Mackey puts it really well. He says that the spiritual and physical realms are two distinct but overlapping realities. And the evil that these spiritual entities inflict is not on human beings only. If you think back to Stephen Fry's critique of God, he mentioned uh, parasitic worms. Uh, they're actually called the Loa Loa worm. If you want to look that up, have fun. Um, he mentioned them as a kind of evil inherent in nature. And why, he asked, and I would argue quite justifiably, why create such a thing? So turn to the right in your Bible to the letter that we call Romans chapter 8. If you're in Mark, that's just a few books to the right. Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. This is a letter drafted by a master apprentice of Jesus called Paul. Let's read from Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. He writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So, yes, there are creatures in the animal kingdom, parasites, that feed off of other living things in grotesque and even detrimental ways. But really, Stephen Fry could have mentioned any number of horrors. Uh, if you've watched any number of Planet Earth episodes, you've seen like a G-rated glimpse into the often cruel and unforgiving world of the animal kingdom. Um, the Ichneumon wasp is an insect that lays eggs in the body of a living host, which in turn devour the host alive from the inside before they erupt out of its body when they've matured. And while studying the Ignumian wasp, Charles Darwin actually began to struggle with his dwindling belief in a good God, and he wrote this to a friend in one of his letters. I am bewildered, Darwin said. I had no intention to write atheistically, but I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do, and as I wish to do, evidence of design and beneficence on all sides of us. There seems to me too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the Ignumian wasp with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. What a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horridly cruel works of nature. So, many species of animals abandon or kill or even devour their newborns. The animal kingdom is often a violent, 
cruel world, overflowing with abject suffering. And animals are only one aspect of what we call nature. There are hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes. And yes, some of them we create nowadays with our effect on the environment, but not all of them. They've been around before us um, and quite, for quite a spell, actually. So why? The early church actually responded to this question with the understanding of those two overlapping dimensions of reality. And maybe for some of you guys that sounds a bit strange, but the early church actually uniformly argued that spiritual beings, like humans, were created free, and that they, like humans, are given influence and responsibility in the world. And we have to add to that what we've already learned from Jesus in John chapter 8, what's been kind of the landmark text for this series, when he says this, you belong to your father, he says to the religious leaders, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So point number two in building a spiritual warfare theodicy. Spiritual beings have the ability to afflict the natural order, creation itself, with evil and suffering and even death. And now that we have those first two building blocks in place, we can begin to make the sense of the final piece, which is chaos. You see, in the conversation around finding a balance in the supernatural worldview, there's often a frustratingly ambiguous gray area in the middle because we are, in theory, learning to become the type of people who take the supernatural realm very seriously, but without becoming the type of people who blame the devil for everything, from like a cough to a parking ticket or whatever. And that brings us to chaos. Now, hang in there with me for a minute. There's a branch of mathematics called chaos theory. If you've seen Jurassic Park, you know all about it. And it reveals that any complicated system can be massively affected by seemingly insignificant events along the way. So the slightest variation in a sufficiently complex process at one point may cause remarkable variations in that process at another point. This is sometimes called the butterfly effect, if you've ever heard of that. And the idea is that the flap of a butterfly wing in one part of the globe can, under the right conditions, be the decisive variable that brings out a hurricane in another part of the globe several months later. And if you're wondering, how do we get here? Here's, here's why this matters. Our world, our lives, our own souls, according to the scriptures, are broken, in a sense. They are bent out of shape, bent away from what is true and good and toward that which destroys us. So in the natural order, wasps lay eggs in caterpillar larvae, and hurricanes destroy entire cities and civilizations, and the world is ravaged by suffering and death. Because both humans and spiritual beings are created with freedom, and because that freedom is often used to do evil, and creation itself is paying an ongoing price for that. And you know from your own experience and the experience of people around you that an act of evil, even a really simple one like a cutting word or something that fractures a relationship between just two people or a white lie, that doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has consequences. And the same is true on a cosmic scale. Simple actions set in motion ripples in the water of the universe, as it were. And those ripples intersect with other ripple, ripples. And now, because our world is broken and ravaged by evil, we are often victimized by that evil simply because of complicated patterns of chaos. 
And in that chaos, you have something called demonic oppression. I would actually argue that there are two variations of demonic involvement in the world and in your life. There's direct and indirect demonic oppression. Now, direct demonic oppression is obvious enough. You have the exorcism stories of Jesus where there seems to be an actual entity living in or over a a human being, and believe it or not, that same type of thing continues to happen today. I would argue other things that you read or see in the news like an unexplained mass shooting or horrific child abuse that make you stop and go, oh my gosh, whoa, that is demonic. That's direct demonic oppression. But then there's indirect demonic oppression. And I would argue that that is any and all kinds of evil that for all we know may not be personally energized and enabled by an evil spirit per se, but they are demonic even so simply because evil itself is demonic. It originates in Satan and in his kingdom. And in both cases, whether direct or indirect, we are, as apprentices of Jesus, are to follow in Jesus' example in recognizing evil for what it is and where it comes from. Scholar Greg Boyd puts it like this. He says, when one possesses a vital awareness that in between God and humanity, there exists a vast society of spiritual beings who are quite like humans in possessing intelligence and free will, there is simply no difficulty in reconciling the reality of evil with the goodness of the supreme God. It virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. So, consider this then. If part of our broken creation is inherently chaotic in the way of autonomous wills and infinite variables and demonic influence and just happenstance and circumstance and natural evil, in all of that, how does God intervene? When you pray for protection or when you pray against evil forces or when you pray for someone you know in your life to come to faith in Jesus, in what ways does God respond to those prayers? Let me try to respond with a flawed but decent analogy if you guys will let me. Imagine for a moment that there's a a small house situated in the midst of a war-torn countryside. And that countryside is occupied by a powerful enemy. And the family that resides in that house is made up of the wife and children and grandchildren of some powerful head captain who's currently away wrapped up in war against this invading enemy. Now imagine that in that house, there's a small radio that communicates without fail with a device that the captain carries on his person while he is away at war at all times. And let's say that that family radios to the captain to let him know that they've fallen victim to an attack or that they need supplies or that someone has been wounded or become ill. The captain will hear those requests and he cares tremendously for his family, obviously. And even so, he's part of a larger battle. There's thousands of lives to consider, presumably some immediate skirmish going on that moment. Uh, maybe. So sometimes the captain meets his family's request, sometimes immediately so, sometimes he does, but they're a tad delayed, as was the case in the story in Daniel. And the family in the house lacks the broad perspective of the cabin, uh, the captain. So they learn to trust that the captain cares for them. They learn to trust that no matter what, the captain's desire, his will, as it were, is always to meet their needs and that he will always work to do so with every resource at his disposal. But it isn't possible for the captain to intervene in every single way, even the way that he would like to. 
Now, obviously, it's a metaphor, so it breaks down, and you have to ask, well, isn't God different than some captain in an analogy? For one, don't we believe that God is all-powerful? So how can something be impossible for God, as it were? And I want you to think about this for just a minute, because we all know what we mean collectively when we sing a song that has a line like, nothing is impossible for you, God, or when we say things that are straight out of the scriptures, like with God, all things are possible, or even from um, the scripture we read just a moment ago where Jesus himself says, anything is possible for the one who believes. But these are deep-seated truth statements. They're not metaphysical truth assertions, meaning uh, we all actually agree that there are things that God can't do. God cannot sin, for example, um, According to James, God can't actually be tempted by anyone. Um, God cannot violate the law of contradiction, so he can't make a round triangle or he can't make a married bachelor or something like that. So, in the same way, God cannot sovereignly decree that the cosmos is both free and also not free. So, if, if the cosmos is indeed free, then by definition, free agents are free to go this way or to go that way. And if God intervenes in such a way that he decrees, now, well, right now you can only go this way, then you are no longer free. So for God to respond to every single prayer in keeping with what he wants, in keeping with his heart and his will, he would have to at times revoke freedom. And as far as we can tell from the scriptures and from our own experience, he doesn't do that. Irrevocability is built into the very definition of free will. And this means that you and I are confronted with a life that is inherently chaotic, riddled with evil, and set before the inevitability of all kinds of suffering and ultimately death. And at this point, I want to point out, I also officiate weddings from time to time. And this is the kind of thing that I say there as well. Um, but, but even though that's the reality of being not just a disciple of Jesus, but a human being, that you are set before the inevitability of suffering and death, this is not a realization without hope. Now, one way of understanding the entire biblical narrative is that it is the story of an ongoing cosmic war. And if you liken that narrative to other stories of war that we know from history, it actually becomes quite helpful. Now, one story goes, on June 6, 1944, the Allied forces stormed the beach in Normandy, France, and defeated the German military there. And historians apparently generally agree that this was the decisive moment of victory in the war because the battle ensured the victory of the Allied forces against Germany in the long term. Uh, long term. Of course, it actually took another full year or more of fighting before V-Day was actually declared and the war was over. Though the war had been won in principle, a single battle a year before that. And during that ensuing year, there were more than 200,000 casualties along the way. Again, this from Greg Boyd. He writes this, In the same way, Christ, in principle, defeated the powers with the unsurpassable love he unleashed through his incarnation, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. D-Day has been fought and won, but we are still waiting for V-Day. In the meantime, there are many important battles to fight. Indeed, sometimes an enemy fights the hardest when they know their doom is certain. So in our story, the story of the scriptures, in our own story, the story of the church, the hero has already rescued his love. The enemy has been defeated. And on a coming day, all of the enemy's evil will be completely eradicated for good. And I would argue that one of the most essential aspects of understanding your fight against the devil is understanding what he does and what God does and how the two are never alike. 
in the words of Jesus himself. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you see that distinction? One brings death and the other life, radically opposite poles. God's purpose for you and your life is not death. Do you understand that? Honestly, my heart breaks and my stomach turns when some vile thing happens in the brokenness of our world, a mass shooting, a hurricane, whatever it might be, something in the news, and I hear these platitudes on the lips of well-meaning sympathizers when they say things like, well, you know, God has a plan, God's in control, and I say, God did not do that. I heard someone stand before a congregation once and claim that though his father had physically abused him for years, God had planned that with a great purpose in mind for his future. God did not do that. A broken man did that, and he did it according to the will of Satan, not according to the will of God. At my own father's funeral, a pastor opened the proceedings with his prayer saying, Oh God, you're sovereign over death. You give and you take away. And I stepped behind that same microphone moments later and I said, God did not take my dad. The enemy did but not for long. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this matters. Because how can you go to battle with an enemy if you attribute his work to God's will, to God's control or mysterious purposes in your life? How can you hope to understand God if you impose on him the murderous work of the evil one? Recently, I was wrestling with both my kids. Uh, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and you've got to wrestle. It's the thing that happens. And um, in the ensuing scuffle, someone's always injured. That's how you know the wrestling is over. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, you know, you just wrestle until it happens, and you're like, well, that's it for that. And then they're upset that it's over and upset about the injury. I don't know why we do it, honestly. But I was wrestling with both my kids, and I had, you know, my four-year-old son, and I threw him on the couch, boom, and slammed him down. And then I hear over here uh, behind me on this other side of the couch, on the ground, and I look over, and my little daughter, Isla, has somehow just flung herself backwards off, in the excitement of it all, just threw herself backwards off the couch, and boom, on the, you know, hardwood floor. And now she's crying, ah, that the wrestling is now over. And, uh, and I went, ran over to her, and I helped her up, and in her tears, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry sorry, what happened? And she goes, Dada pushed me. And I was like, what? No, I didn't. I was way over here. Um, and I, I held her, you know, and comforting her and, and telling her, like, oh, I'm so sorry you got hurt and all that stuff. But I'm also saying, no, I, I did not push you. And in fact, I, I would never push you. Things were crazy and you got knocked over, but that wasn't me. I don't do that. That's not how Dada is. He will not hurt you that way. He does not push you. And I realize that's a silly sounding analogy, but as a dad, I actually felt this little horrible pang of sadness at even my little daughter's briefly held assumption that I would intentionally hurt her ever. So can you imagine how God the Father must feel to have the devil's work attributed to him? Following the, uh, the Japanese tsunami of 2011 in which nearly 20,000 men, women, and children were killed, many of them in an instant, there were, of course, pastors and thinkers and theologians who spoke up to attribute the tsunami and its effects to the work of God, the control of God, the plan of God, all that. 
And theologian David Bentley Hart became so deeply troubled by this claim that he authored a small book in response, and it is a scathing indictment of the idea of an all-controlling God. And I want to read you guys a small quote from uh, that book that's strongly worded, to say the least, but it's not to ruffle feathers. I want us to consider something important before we end tonight. He writes this, If indeed there were a God whose true nature, whose justice and sovereignty were revealed in the death of a child, or the dereliction of a soul, or a predestined hell, then it would be no great transgression to think of him as a kind of malevolent or contemptible demiurge or lesser God, and to hate him, and to deny him worship, and to seek a better God than he. And here, David Bentley Hart is actually connecting with the gentleman who began our time together this evening, Stephen Fry. Because there is a being at work in the universe, one that the scriptures actually do call a God, the God of this age. And this God's work is indeed revealed in the death of a child. And indeed, it is no great transgression to think of him as a kind of malevolent lesser God and to hate him and to deny him worship and to seek a better God than he. Now, I began the teaching by claiming that Mr. Fry was entirely correct. I just think he was talking about the wrong God. To the one responsible, I join him in solidarity saying, bone cancer in children, how dare you? How dare you corrupt a world so that there is so much misery that is not our fault? It's not right. In his own words, it is utterly, utterly evil. Why should we respect a capricious, mean-minded God who creates a world or an order of things, rather, that is so full of injustice and pain? This is not our God. This evil, lesser God we denounce just as we denounce his work and the toll it has taken on our world. And no, Satan is likely not responsible for your particular headache, but all that is not good is either directly or indirectly connected to the evil one, and we will blame God for none of it. And when we are berated with stories of marriages undone by unfaithfulness and relationships broken by selfishness and deceit, of synagogue shootings and bar shootings, of children abused or neglected or starving, of foster children waiting in an office terrified with now no home to go back to, we recognize that God is not the one in control over these things. The evil one is, but not for long. And together we join with our teacher, our master, our Lord Jesus in rebuking the evil one, pushing his parade of darkness and despair back as we await a coming day when Jesus will crush the serpent's head once and for all and he will never steal nor kill nor destroy ever again. The liar comes to do these things, but Jesus comes to give life and life to the fullest. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.